0: Good morning. good morning. Let's uh, let's begin. The only place we can begin by praying. Can't do anything right without seeking the Lord's help first. Our heavenly Father, you are magnificent and mighty, glorious and sovereign, good and gracious. Loving. Father, we pray for your love now, and your grace, and your mercy, that you would give us ears to hear, eyes to see, and soften hearts to receive your word, which is true, right, living, and inerrant. Father, we confess that we are in desperate need of your word. It is to us life, water to a dying man. We are dying men and women without it. So, Father, feed us, we pray. We pray, Lord, that you would lift our hearts into heaven, as it were, to see Christ in his glory, so that there we might be equipped to worship you well and rightly not only this morning, the rest of this week, and the rest of our lives. To this end that we pray, in Jesus' name, amen. Do you take this woman to be your wife, promising to have and to hold from this day forward, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, until death do you part. These off-spoken words mark what is the climax of a beautiful event called the wedding. A moment not at all without emotion. I remember my own, my Bride was bawling, and I surreptitiously, went like that. Not only do these words bring to me the sweet memory of my covenant promise made to my wife, Maricel, but I, as the efficient in many other weddings, have had that, that special opportunity to, to be right there in what is, seems to be like that secret bubble where it's just the, the groom. And the bride, and and you and you hear those whispers, and you see their face up close, and they're seconds away from being officially married for the rest of their lives. It's no light and easy decision. Especially in a day and age where no fault divorce seems to be the norm. Marriage still means something, though. People want it, defend it, or does it? It, of course, means different things to different people. For many throughout history, it's merely been pragmatic, right? Keeping a family name, combining incomes, being granted certain tax exemptions. For others, it's a union between two people bound by the emotion of love of course, as soon as that emotion dissolves, well, then so too does the union. For many, it's just a socially acceptable thing to do. You've not thought much about the why, so much as you've thought about the who. Who's the one? Who will I marry? Of course, Paul tells us in Ephesians 5 that marriage was instituted by God himself Back with the creation of Adam and Eve, not for any pragmatic reasons, though there are those in a marriage, and not merely for romantic reasons, though there certainly is that as well, but firstly and primarily for gospel reasons. That is, Paul tells us elaborately that marriage is an institution which points to the far greater marriage between Christ and his church. His bride. Each and every marriage here on earth since Adam and Eve to the newest couple getting married today Ultimately, in God's design, points to the gospel message of Jesus Christ dying for and, and coming into union with the church, the collected whole of all sinners whom God has elected and whom Christ has died on behalf of, and whom the Spirit has regenerated. We sang about it earlier, from heaven he came and sought her to make her his only bride. This is why marriage is referred to as a covenant in the Bible. It mirrors the new covenant that Christians stand under as a result of Christ's death. Of course, the marriage covenant here between one man and one woman is not an eternal covenant. Jesus goes on to teach, and we'll see this in a couple weeks in Mark 12, that in heaven there will be no more marriage. Man and woman will not give themselves to marriage anymore. But the new covenant of Christ's salvation of the church, bringing his bride to himself, that will last on into eternity, never ending. In the marriage covenant of a man and a woman to promise to hold each other from this day forward until we say, as death do you part. And of course, that's, that's the sad reality of all marriages, isn't it? they all come to an end. They begin in joy, but sadly, they all come to an end, either in death or, more sadly, in divorce. The glorious good news of the gospel, though, is that Christ's marriage with his church, that began in death, Christ's death, but ends in eternal joy. Unending, forevermore, no divorce. The passage before us this morning gives us some insight into the marriage covenant between a man and a woman, and it does so by highlighting for us the ultimate marriage between Christ and the church. Let me read the passage, and then we'll look at the context and what it says to us. Mark chapter 10, verse 1, and he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. And crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up in order to test him. Just a side note here it's interesting that throughout the book of Mark, all the testing has been done by the Pharisees against Jesus. Who was the first person to test Jesus? It was the devil. So there's this pattern of every testing by the Pharisee kind of just being another outworking of a satanic attack against Jesus. They came up to him in order to test him and asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? So we read this question not as a a legitimate legitimate question that they want, but as an attack to catch him. Verse 3, he answered them, what did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter, and he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. This is God's word, and may he bless it to our understanding. Now, the the, the context here, you can see in verse 1, is Jesus has now entered into Judea. This is the home turf, if you will, of the Pharisees. Home ground advantage. And we see in verse 2, they use that immediately to their advantage and approach Jesus and try and test him, or probably better rendered, try and catch him. You see, the Pharisees... They knew, right, that John the Baptist had been killed precisely because of his outspoken objection to King Herod and his unlawful marriage. Herod beheaded him because of his unlawful divorce and remarriage. If they could now get Jesus to publicly oppose Herod's remarriage, well then surely they'd be able to get Jesus under Herod's wrath. That's the plan. And so they ask him if he thinks it's lawful for a man to divorce his wife, Well, because Jesus is Jesus, he flips the test back on them and asks them a more crucial question concerning divorce. Look at verse 3. What did Moses command you? In other words, Jesus drives them to the essential issue on marriage and divorce. Who defines it? What did Moses say? Right, Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible, and within those books, we have some of the most foundational passages on marriage itself. And so Jesus, in shining the spotlight back on the Pharisees, asks them, what does the Bible say? Friends, this ought to be, as a little rabbit trail here, this ought to be the case with us, shouldn't it? I mean, countless ideas of marriage float around our society vying for our attention, from the earliest ages, we were watching Disney movies that set up what is the falsest ideal of marriage that you can get. And yet, we buy into it. And then later, young boys buy into other ideas that they've learned in the locker room about marriage. Not the best place to learn about marriage. And of course, there's the constant barrage of voices that we hear from all over the political and cultural spectrum today trying to tell us what marriage is, define it, redefine it, or what have you. The thing that we have to ask is, what does Moses command you? Is our understanding of marriage, divorce, of remarriage, of anything grounded in the living and inerrant word of God? Well, the Pharisees play. and Their answer in verse 4 immediately tips their hand. They answer in such a way that they reveal the inner workings of their own hardened hearts. They quote from a passage in Deuteronomy, quoting from Moses, Deuteronomy 24, where Moses writes that a man is allowed to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. What's crucial to see is that the context of that verse in Deuteronomy was that God, through the author of Moses, was instituting this certificate of divorce as a way to actually curb the practice of divorce. Turn back to Deuteronomy 24 quickly and you'll see what I mean. Deuteronomy 24 verses 1 through 4. Moses, inspired by God, writes this, when a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her. There's the After she's been defiled. For that is an abomination before the Lord. And you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. <laughs> this is Old Testament case law. right? It, it, it's the if this happens and then that happens. Here's the result that the Lord does not like. If a man divorces his wife for indecency. And she marries another man. And that man dies. She therefore cannot go back to the man that pushed her out because that would be adultery. What he is describing here, what was intended to be done here, was a legal barrier to men sinning as they pleased. In those rude early days, some indecency might have been, my wife burnt my dinner. I want to divorce you. You're out. And then a week later... He realizes, I'm an idiot. I need this woman back in my life. Well, lo and behold, in a week, she's married another man. That man dies. She can't go back now to her first husband because there's been another man. And adultery has been committed. What Moses is trying to do here is say, look, count the cost of marriage and of divorce. Picking your wife out for burning the meal is not a good reason. Or for what you thought was looking at another man in a way you didn't like. Or for whatever reason, count the cost of what you're doing because adultery could happen. The law in Deuteronomy 24 was meant in part to protect the rights of women. So rather than giving permission for divorce, they were intended to actually restrict the ease with which divorce would take place. Their words meant to remind the people of the solemn vows taken in a marriage commitment. But here the Pharisees waved this passage around like a coveted get-out-of-jail-free card. What was intended as a barrier against sin had now been twisted into a bridge, bridge for easy divorce. Jesus doesn't miss a beat. If they pick Deuteronomy 24 as their go-to passage, a passage which, by the way, they've distorted to their own sinful desires, Jesus goes to an even more foundational passage of Scripture. The Pharisees pick up on a passage meant to curb easy divorce, showing that they're really thinking, okay, here's what we can get away with. But Jesus calls them out on that in verse 5, right? He says, look, Moses wrote that because of your hardness of heart, so you wouldn't just divorce willy-nilly, God allowed that because without you having this, moral chaos would ensue. Lawful divorce, in other words, was never the ideal, but rather a step put in place to keep society from from descending further further into destructive behavior. But Jesus, in order to highlight their hardness of heart, goes to a passage which says, No, here's the ideal. Here's what marriage is really all about. You picked a verse that says, Here's what we can get away with. Here's my verse. that here's here's the ideal. Verse 6. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. He first quotes from Genesis 127. And he's, he's quoting here because he's looking at creation and where marriage came from. God created all things in six days. And at the climax of his creative purposes, he creates man to rule over the rest of creation. And he saw that it wasn't good that man should be alone. And so out of his rib, he creates Eve. You ever noticed that he puts Adam to sleep and, and literally does surgery to make his bride, which no doubt is a foreshadowing of Christ being put to sleep on the cross and out of his side comes his bride, the church. But he creates Eve, and he wakes up, and he says, whoa, man, which is where we get woman from. (laughs) It's not true. That's a bad joke. I won't tell it again. But he does give her the first love song, and he says, flesh of my flesh, bone of my bones, out of man was taking woman. She shall be Eve, or she shall be called woman. Uh, the mother of all living. And they're one flesh. And and Jesus quotes this to say, look, this this is where it came from. In in perfection, in Eden where there was no sin, they would be together, and they were meant to be together. And then he goes on to quote from Genesis 2.24, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Uh, The two shall become one flesh. I want to step back and look at a couple points as to why I think Jesus is quoting from this foundational marriage passage. Here's why I think marriage exists from what Jesus is doing here. One, God instituted it from the beginning. It's before the fall. It's for all humankind because it was instituted with Adam and Eve, the head of all humankind. What that means is that marriage is for everyone. And we do know from Ephesians 5 that marriage points to Christ and the church. And a godly marriage especially points to Christ and the church. But all people can get married. Although, of course, in this day and age, we need to add the caveat between one man and one woman. But whether you're Christian or not, marriage is for you. So if somebody comes to me and says, I'd like you to marry me. I haven't met this person Say, okay, um, tell me about yourself. Well, I'm an atheist, and, uh, and my wife's an atheist as well. We want to get married. First I'll say, well, why do you want a Christian pastor to marry you? That doesn't make sense. But if say he wants it. I said, okay, I'll do it. Because marriage is for all people. If a Muslim wants to get married to another Muslim, they can get married. Because marriage is, from the beginning, a creation mandate for all people. Secondly, it's something that's monogamous. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. One wife. It's meant to be for one man and one woman, and therefore it's a monogamous institution. Those cases that we see throughout the Old Testament of David taking many wives, Solomon taking many wives, are not set up for us as examples of, oh, that's a good idea. No, the result of that is always sin. In fact, Solomon's many wives led to the civil war of Israel and the destruction of the temple. God has, from the beginning, instituted a monogamous marriage covenant. Secondly, or thirdly, it's something that is heterosexual. A man shall leave his father and mother, and he shall hold fast to his wife. Uh, Throughout the scriptures, we see what God says as sin, as men being with men or women being with women. Marriage has always been between one man and one woman. Fourthly, it's a lifelong commitment. Hold fast to your one wife. Don't let her go. Ever let her go. Paul in Ephesians 5 commands the man... The husband, to love your wives. Anybody know how many words there are in Greek for the word love? Three. There's phileo, which we get our city Philadelphia, which means brotherly love. There's um, eros, thank you. I was going to say the last one next. The second one was eros, which we get the word erotic from, so that's a, a sexual love. And the third is agape, which is a covenant committed love. Which of those three do you think Paul needs to remind husbands to love their wives? It's not erotically. That's easy. It's not phileo. Yes, she's going to be your best friend. It's agape. Commit yourself to her covenantally, no matter what. Hold on to her. It's a covenant love which mirrors the covenant love of Christ to the church. It's a lifelong commitment between one man and one woman. Fifthly, it's physical. It's sexual. He says, hold fast to her and the two shall become one flesh. Friends, we need to be reminded, especially as Baptists, that physicality is a good thing. If you don't believe me, turn back in your Old Testament to the Song of Solomon and read that for your Sunday afternoon meditations. There is a cheek-blushing book that exonerates and upholds beautifully the goodness of sexual love within the covenant of marriage. God created all things good. It's God's gift of oneness to one man and one woman. And lastly, it's spiritual. The two become One. In 1 Corinthians 7, Paul warns that adulterers, men who who sleep with other women, are ripping apart spiritually what's been bound together between the husband and wife. And therefore, that ought not to be done. There's not only the physical oneness, but there's a spiritual knitting of the hearts between a husband and a wife. This is why Jesus can conclude in verse 9. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Marriage was intended and viewed as a lifelong and exclusive relationship between one man and one woman. That's the ideal. God had not and has not changed his mind on that. So what's at stake if this ideal is cast aside? What's at stake if divorce becomes the norm? Well, the answer is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Again, Ephesians 5 reminds us that every marriage is a picture of Christ in the church. And so that it highlights the beauty of Christ giving himself covenantally to one people, the church whom he died for and will keep and will raise to life and be with them everlasting life forevermore. That's the ideal. But if we're all honest, we do not live in the ideal. Our fallen world is just that. Fallen, full of sin, and the self always leads the way. So this leads us to Jesus' teaching on divorce and remarriage in verses 10 through 12. He says there, after the disciples approach him and ask him about this teaching, he says, whoever divorces his wife and remarries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Now we need to argue and agree here with what Jesus is arguing, that unlawful divorce, that is divorce for any willy-nilly reason your heart wants, followed by remarriage, leads to adultery. That's the the case of it. It's a tough case, especially for our ears to hear. But we also need to see that there are a few exceptions, circumstances, where divorce and remarriage are permitted. So I'll give those two right now. The first we find in Matthew 19, verse 9, and it's sexual immorality. I'll read that. Jesus says, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality... And marries another, commits adultery. So the question is, what is sexual immorality? Well, I define it, many have defined it, as any sexual act that defiles the one flesh union of the marriage bed, which Hebrews 13 tells us to protect and keep in honor. Of course, we can't help but be reminded of Jesus' words in Matthew 5 that even lusting after a woman in your heart is adultery. But here, sexual immorality, where the marriage bed is broken. Uh, Jesus says, On those grounds, divorce, though not ideal, is allowed. Secondly, desertion by a spouse. First Corinthians 7:12 through 16. Let me read that. Paul says: if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. Here's the scenario with that before I keep reading. He's imagining here probably a very common scenario in the early church, and and one that's not uncommon today even. Where a man and a woman marry, but now within that marriage, one of the, uh, the spouses becomes a Christian. And we know from Paul that Christians are only supposed to marry Christians in the Lord. So what should happen now that the wife is a Christian and the husband isn't? Well, Paul says, stay married. Love your husband. Commit yourself to him. It may be through your commitment to him that even he becomes a Christian. Paul goes on to say, but if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. In other words, if the unbelieving spouse decides, this isn't what I signed up for, and he abandons his wife, then she is free to remarry, and it's not adultery. It's as if he's died. It's as if, He wasn't there at all. Again, verse 39 of that passage says, A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she's free to be married to whomever she wishes, only in the Lord. Again, if you're a Christian, you only marry someone else who is a Christian. So let's recap as we come to a close here. Marriage is supposed to be lifelong. Period. With the exception of adultery or abandonment, then divorce is allowed and remarriage isn't seen as adultery. But of course, our culture today doesn't like that. That's it? If my wife commits adultery or, or if my husband abandons me, that's the only reason? Our hearts grasp for reasons to look for divorce. Our churches today don't like this teaching. I think if we're honest, our own lives many times act contrary to this teaching. I want to close by applying this to different people here, because we all are in different stages of life. This is not uh, uh, of my own thinking. I, I'm borrowing this from a friend, but I think it's right on point. If you're married, firstly, keep praying and thank God for your marriage. And work hard by the grace of God to stay married. Wives, love and submit to your husbands. Husbands, love and lead your wives and glorify the Lord as you sanctify one another together. This is lifelong. If you're married, but your marriage is in a downward spiral, seek help, seek repentance. Is it spiraling because of your sin? Fight the idea that divorce is your ideal or only option. It's not. The grace of God raises the dead from life, and the grace of God can heal any marriage. If you've been lawfully divorced, that is, your spouse has committed adultery against you, left you, yes, it's right and okay to mourn your divorce. It's not ideal, and it's sad. But don't feel ashamed. There's no guilt on your part, and feel free to remarry in the Lord. Don't think you must. Pray for obedience if you're to remain single. Pray for wisdom as you think through the rest of your life. If you're unlawfully divorced, you're divorced for unbiblical reasons, And still single, pray that you might find and have real reconciliation with your ex spouse. That's something to think, consider in obedience to the Lord to pray about. If that's impossible, pray for the strength to remain single in honor to the Lord. If you're divorced because of your sin, seek repentance, confess your sin. but know that you've not committed the unpardonable sin. There's nothing unforgivable. And in Christ and repenting before him, you can grow in grace and still find a God-honoring life ahead of you. Remain as you are. If you're here and you're single, no matter what age, don't think that you must marry. We didn't look at the passages, but Paul reminds us Nicely, and many times, that singleness is not a curse, but a good gift from God. Our greatest example is Jesus Christ himself. Sometimes singleness is for a season. You know you're going to get married in the future. Right now, live obediently in that season. Don't act as if you were married. Sometimes singleness is for a lifetime. Live obediently in the strength of the Lord. There are many people who we have to confess are attracted to the same sex. Those are people that we want to say, if you want to honor the Lord in that temptation, remain single and pray for the strength to do so, honoring God. In the end, there's no marriage that perfectly, sinlessly reflects the beauty of the gospel of Christ in the church. But we strive to. Christ has come to redeem us to himself for that one never-ending perfect marriage. Scriptures remind us that we can look in faith to Christ in, in hopeful anticipation for that coming marriage feast in glory. And as we look there, our lives can feed on the strength of that. Whether we're single, whether we're recently divorced, whether we're newly married, as we look to Christ and what He's done for us in the gospel, that will have an effect upon us here. We' to pray these things for us in Christ's name. We' pray for us.